Welcome to the EP Edit. This is a podcast dedicated to topics of interest in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. I'm Jody Elrod, Managing Editor of EP Lab Digest. In this episode, EP Lab Digest Clinical Editor, Dr. Brad Knight, sat down with Dr. Jagmeet Singh to discuss his new book entitled Future Care, Sensors, Artificial Intelligence, and the Reinvention of Medicine. We're delighted to have Dr. Singh on the podcast today. Learn more about his new book here. I'm Brad Knight. I'm the Director of Cardiac Electrophysiology at Northwestern here in Chicago. I'm also the Editor-in-Chief of EP Lab Digest. I'm Jag Singh, a cardiac electrophysiologist at Mass General Hospital in Boston and a professor of medicine at Howard Medical School. I'm grateful to be joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Jag Singh. Uh, He has recently uh, written a book uh, entitled Future Care, and I'm very excited to spend some time with you to hear a little bit more about this. I can tell you it's very intriguing that an electrophysiologist has written a book like this. I I find it very exciting that a, a colleague in my same field has really taken on a topic that's broad and has a lot of generalized applications. But maybe we can start with the beginning of the book. And I remember very well at the beginning of COVID, learning that you were one of the first colleagues, I think, of ours uh, who was attacked by COVID. And I think we all learned it through social media at the time. But you begin the book with that experience of being in a hospital with COVID. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. And do you think that you would have ever written this book had you not been in that position? Thanks, Brad. So this is my first book. Uh, it's obviously, you know, I think both of us have written textbooks before, but uh, writing a trade publication has been a phenomenal experience. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So actually, you know, in all honesty, I, I started writing this book about a year before COVID. And my, my work in, you know, the realm of uh, sensors and, and device innovations kind of predated that by almost a decade plus. Uh, so the b- book was always bubbling over. And I think the COVID experience probably helped catalyze the whole process, uh, but I'd done a fair amount of research work uh, prior to COVID. Obviously, you know, with COVID kicking in, the acceleration and the pace of uh, the acceptance of digital technology actually accelerated significantly. So a lot of what I wrote was probably already outdated in a short period of time. But nevertheless, I, I think it, the book started before. I, I think COVID really changed the tone with which I was writing the book before. Uh, I think having been a patient at the vantage point of looking at clinical care um, from the other side of the bed really influenced the way I I changed my tone in writing because now I could write it both not just as a clinician, but also as a patient. Um, And and one thing about the book, I I think, is that it's an easy read. And a part of the fact that it's an easy read is because it's peppered and punctuated by um, several stories, both personal as well as patient stories, which really highlight the the implementation of digital technology and what the right way of actually putting that into practice should be. I I, I think the the important thing of COVID was that it it allowed me to give this humanistic appeal to the book uh, because I think you know you can talk about digital innovation, you can talk about technology. But if there's no humanistic appeal there, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. Yeah, uh, I think, so I think the humanistic that's... appeal you really generated with these patient stories, which I found interestingly uh, beyond EP. So you have a lot of stories about 
healthcare experiences and, and patients that are not just within cardiology. And the fact that you're in the hospital with a non-cardiac problem too, um, makes this even more, I think, broader in scope. Um, you divide this book very nicely into four categories. I'm sure you thought a lot about how to do that, but you talk about sensors, then you talk about telemedicine, which had a lot of uh, explosive impact during COVID, talked about artificial intelligence, and then just the healthcare system itself. But you really start with setting the stage with uh, the healthcare system we have and how broken it is. And you know, that's uh, a very capturing read because I think we all agree with that, particularly maybe it's true for electrophysiologists, maybe more so than other subspecialties because we're very, very dependent on the hospital. We're very dependent on the, on the medical system, you know, maybe more so than uh, other physicians and other healthcare providers. Uh, but I would, I would, you know, I think it's easy to talk about how crappy the healthcare system is in the United States and the limitations. But I would, just to start this conversation, ask you if you had had COVID, would you have wanted to be in an intensive care unit at any other, in any other country? That's um, a, a nicely framed question, Brad. I, let's put it this way. I think there are lots of things in the US that work really well, but there are lots of things that can be done better. And I, and I think every country uh, had its tryst with COVID. And I think so did we in the US. And I think within the US, they, we, we found that there was a lot of disparity in care and not every place, not every patient, uh, people were able to get the same care that I got. So I was like you are very privileged in a privileged environment in an academic center, got the best possible care and really uh, did very well at the other end, but I don't think uh, the same has transpired across the country in all the rural areas. And, there, and, and I think one of the things that really got highlighted during the pandemic was the inequity of care. Uh, yeah. I think it, it really, the, the social determinants of health really became a topic that we never talked about before. And now we realize that hmm, this is front and center facing us so I think we learned a lot of lessons, um, and I, I also believe that we are the most powerful nation and have the best healthcare system, but we clearly at the same time do not have the same quality metrics uh, compared to many other developed countries uh, who spend half the money we spend on healthcare. So, yeah. so the way we practice medicine, I think there is, is non-sustainable in the long term. And there are a lot of things that can change. So even though I'm grateful for having received care here, uh, I think there are lots of things that can be done better. Well, maybe we'll get to uh, how we can make these changes, but you're right. I think uh, the disparities in healthcare are why you're comfortable being in an ICU in the, in the United States. That would be my preference if I were quite sick. But you know, it's very clear that those there's haves and have nots uh, in this country particularly in the healthcare system. And I almost wonder if that makes things worse, that the, the, have, the people who are able to take advantage of the healthcare system in the United States uh, seem to not be motivated to change it for others. You know, I think a good example is kind of the trend of concierge medicine. I see a lot of primary care doctors going into concierge medicine. You know, the people that have the resources to hire these physicians who are at their beck and call, you know, kind of perpetuates this disparity 
and further demotivates those with the ability to make changes in our healthcare system, actually make those changes. The topics that you cover, you know, start with sensors. And as an electrophysiologist, you have a lot of experience with that. Maybe you can uh, spend a little time on that topic of, of, of sensors, either in our field or, you know, more broadly. Yeah, I know. Uh, happy to do that. I, I, I would like to take a step back on what you just touched upon, which I think is a big issue. And, and maybe we'll cover it in, uh, you know, the next few minutes is this whole concept of the disparities getting worse. And I think the propensity within the healthcare system in the U.S. has always been is to backfill the gaps uh, after they've already occurred. And I think with the digital strategies we have now or digital technology we have now, we have an opportunity to, in a forward-thinking manner, prevent those gaps from occurring and actually backfill the gaps that are already there in a completely new way. So we're in a situation that we can actually really enhance equity through this digital transformation. And I think we need to look at it from that, uh, those lens. Now, with sensors, you know, the book actually, when I first started writing this, was called Censored, uh, with the S-E-N-S-O-R-E-D, uh, and I did not call it Future Care at that point in time, because the focus of the book was largely in sensors, because that's what I understood best at that point in time. But that section of, of the book focuses on digitization of the human body. It, it talks about, you know, not just implantable sensors that you and I are very familiar with because we implant them all the time, but with wearable sensors and, and where the two intersect of where implantables and wearables in conjunction with each other can actually translate into better care and better outcomes. Uh, and Brad, as, as you know, you know, we treat patients with heart failure, we treat patients with atrial fibrillation, we treat patients who have a high propensity for sudden cardiac death, uh, leave alone the entire other spectrum of patients with diabetes and hypertension, all of those being disease-modifying conditions that influence our practice of care with hypertension, with, with heart failure and, and, and the other conditions I just labeled. But there are sensor-based strategies now that allow us to not only get into the realm of, um, I would say, secondary prevention, but actually in primary prevention, but even a step beyond into primordial prevention, that is prevent yep. the risk factors also from coming up. So the, the, the section on sensors largely deals with this, but along the course, it talks about not just cardiovascular diseases, but also talks about cancer, COPD, diabetes, and, and the other uh, conditions that you know, afflict us uh, in a big proportion. Well, I think that at least there's an awareness that these issues are important. I think even our guidelines are starting to touch on and our classifications of diseases on primordial prevention, whether it's atrial fibrillation, uh, heart failure, uh, addressing obesity and all the other uh, causes that seem to be driving um, these increasing comorbidities. Um, we'll, on the topic of sensors, you, you raise the issue in the book about privacy. And it made me think about, you know, all the efforts, people don't even want their data from Twitter and Instagram shared. So uh, how on earth are the average Americans going to want to share all of their steps and personal health information? Yeah, I know. I think that's that's the job for the regulatory bodies to kind of figure out a strategy of, of ensuring that privacy is maintained. You know, but in all honesty, there are already incentives being given to patients to share that information by their insurance companies, for example, uh, 
uh, and their premiums then are accordingly adjusted based on how they're engaged in these lifestyle measures because that in turn helps wellness and prevents disease and saves the insurance companies money. Yeah. So, so I think there are already strategies for that. It's just that the guardrails really need to be put into place to ensure that they're happening in the best possible fashion. But, you know, um, you and I know, Brad, because we practice this principle in electrophysiology of exception-based care, right? Where you remotely monitor patients with devices and you see them only when they have a problem uh, or when they have a problem, they come to your attention. I think that's gonna happen across the entire breadth of medicine, uh, that there will be continuous care strategies because the way we practice medicine right now is, is oftentimes transactional. You kind of see them at three monthly, six monthly, 12 monthly periods and patients don't fall ill in a transactional fashion. Yeah. They fall ill anytime during that continuous spectrum. And I think that's where continuous care is really going to become the, the central way in which we actually follow our patients and treat our patients, which will then translate into savings and make healthcare more sustainable too. Well, um, a lot happened during COVID, but just as a, a personal anecdote, uh, things seem to be getting back to the way they were just based on the traffic in Chicago now. So, you know, we had the, uh, the luxury of easy commutes for about three years, and now it's just overwhelmingly worse than it was before COVID. And it makes me, it makes me worry a little bit about kind of uh, going back to where we were and not taking advantage of, of the progress we made during COVID, and specifically on telemedicine. So, I mean, I have telemedicine appointments. They're not, they're kind of discouraged because I think of the compensation or reimbursement's not as good. I just still do it by phone, even though there's probably a video link, I still can't even figure out really how to do that. So I just call the patients and everybody's happy with that. But, you know, reimbursement for telemedicine was um, encouraged or promoted and the obstacles were removed very quickly. I'm afraid that this won't continue and in, in, in our field, and electrophysiology, I would say a majority of the patients I see in clinic, I could see remotely. Yeah, I know that's that's a really good point. Um, and I and I like you have experienced the pendulum kind of swinging backwards, and you say, "Hey, what the hell is going?" I thought we were moving in the forward right. direction. So, so you know, one of the things the book really emphasizes um, is that the future of care will be virtual, at least in part that will be censorated, which will be powered by predictive analytics and AI, but will need sustainable workflows that can then translate into improved clinical outcomes. So there are many parts of the future care equation that need to fall in place to make each of these components effective. I think virtual care is the most essential component for, as you said, decompressing our practices and allowing patients to be seen where they are in a timely fashion, in the way they want to be seen, and for whatever they actually want to be seen for. So part of this, the book, the, the reason for writing the book is to really influence change outside in, because inside out, change is always challenging. You know, many of our colleagues, uh, sometimes us included, are so vested in the status quo that you feel comfortable with practicing the trade that you, the way you've always practiced it. And as a consequence of that, I think some of these changes are going to take a while, but I think they will certainly change. There is no way that we're going to go back to completely every clinic visit in the future being in person. 
because yeah. the only way for it to be sustainable is by having these components come together. You know, there is the downside, um, and the downside is, you know, and I talk about this a little bit about the the role of the virtualist versus the traditionalist, and you know, there's a happy medium out there that really needs to be re-emphasized. Uh, but I think I think we're moving in that direction, um, and it may be slow, but I'm hoping that the, this conversation, along with others, uh, are able to institute some of those changes outside in. Yeah, you mentioned influencing others. I, I think you described it pretty well. I think your goal was to empower uh, people, and knowledge is power. So you're basically sharing this information, not just with your peers, but with healthcare administrators, patients, industry, other people who are in a position that could make these changes by showing them what the future of care uh, could be or should be. Exactly, exactly. The book is, you know, essentially for a wide readership, certainly for the clinician, but I think even for the sophisticated non-medical reader and largely for that proportion, that, that population of uh, readers. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, administrators begin paying attention to the impact that this strategy of care can have in the future. You know, you talk about these big companies, the Googles and Facebooks that have really uh, risen in the last few years. And it seems to be that tackling the healthcare system by these companies is a big challenge. It's much more complicated than other industries. And one roadblock or driver for a lack of change is the way we reimburse and compensate. And there's a lot of talk about you know, reimbursing for quality. I think the more you really consider that, it's very, very hard to do that. You know, how do you think that the physician reimbursement model could be changed in a in a realistic way to drive some of the changes that you're suggesting? No, for sure, for sure. I, I, I agree with you, Brad, that the current fee-for-service model is non-sustainable because what it perpetuates is largely volume over value. And what that really focuses on is sickness over wellness. So, you know, the health system is, is healthy as long as patients are sick. And I think we need to flip the argument across and, and really create the quality metrics that we talk about that are so difficult to put in place. But there are many other strategies like shared saving strategies that you, you know, you, you kind of have some sort of capitated strategy for different disease conditions. And if you can share, if you can save, then you share the savings to create incentives on both sides to give the best possible care for the highest value with the least amount of monies. And you land up getting what you incentivize. So if you incentivize, you know, RVUs as we understand it, or 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 you you get competition. But if you incentivize synergy and you incentivize strategies for team building, you get better outcomes. And we know that. So so I think there are ways that we can actually do this. I think the onus is on institutions like yours and ours, which are academic institutions and those academic institutions that have their own health plans actually have an opportunity for exploring and experimenting shared saving strategies to save monies and change the practice of care through some of these digital approaches that provide continuous care. So I think there's a where there's a will, there's a way. And I and I think, you know, as long as there's visionary leadership, it's certainly possible because otherwise healthcare the way it is 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 just not sustainable if we're going to continue the, the current culture 
of chasing margins for everything we do. Yeah, and it's not just margins, it's um, kind of the budgetary process, the annual budget process you talk a lot about. Yeah. And having visionary leadership is important. That there's, I'll just give you an example of instituting an IV soda law program in our hospital required a lot more work than you would think it should because you need to have a particular person who's going to be able to administer that IV soda law. Now it saves that patient admitting to the hospital for two to three days. Yep. Well, you would think that someone would recognize that, take those resources and kind of move them over here. But, you know, even simple movements of resources to do a big picture benefit uh, can, can be very difficult in a, in a rigid system. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think that's where you need not only visionary leadership, but some folks who actually understand what it looks like on the ground floor. So, you know, they can actually open up the hood and look inside and see what's going on rather than just dictating things. So, so I think the leadership really needs to be, uh, you know, boots on the ground at the same time. Well, this is an amazing book as your first book. Uh, what, what are your plans for your, your next book? So I, I'm, I'm writing, a, I've, I've, I have a contract for a second book that I'm, I'm working on. It's, it's going to be in an area that I'm most comfortable with, and uh, it's probably around electrical energy, harnessing electrical energy for human health. So it's, it's still in its early conceptual stages, and, and research end of things is still in its early stages, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that. We'll see how it all plays out eventually. I don't know what you were considering when you came up with a figure for the front of your book. It's a handshake. Uh, between two people. It's kind of a digital, digitized view of that. That was something that we didn't do during COVID. I thought that was an interesting choice. Is there uh, any thought about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, the, the important part of the book called Future Care is, is the word care. Um, and, and there's a really lovely saying by Francis Peabody that the secret of the care of the patient is in caring for the patient. And I'm, I'm hoping that that handshake kind of really brings forth the fact that the human bond is essential for how much ever digitization of healthcare may occur. And that's why the two hands are partially digitized, but there's a nice clasp out there indicating that the human bond should always be and will always be preserved if we're able to and want to look after our patients. Future Care is an outstanding creation. Uh, I look forward to future JAG and what you've got coming. So anything else you want to you share with us? No, Brad, thank you. I just want to thank you for the opportunity and look forward to chatting with you again. Well, we've had the benefit of uh, spending time together on some medical advisory boards, and it's really great for me to see your insight and your uh, commentary. So thank you for doing this and best of luck in your new writing career. Thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate it. We'd like to thank our participants for joining us today. For more information about EP Lab Digest, please visit eplabdigest.com. Thanks for listening. 